0: Good morning, all. Let's pray before I start. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the testimonies that we've heard this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder of the power of the Holy Spirit, your spirit, Lord, dwelling in us, in those that put their trust in you. We thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed your will in your word. And we pray now as we look at your word that you would guide us and direct us, help us to understand your word, that your spirit may be upon us, and help us most of all to put it into practice in our lives, to follow you and give uh, glory to your name, we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. For those uh, visitors, we've been looking at the letter of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and I'm going to continue today with that study. The reason I chose this book was that it was. Uh, I recently spoke about James, the letter of James, uh, which was very practical. And like James, Philippians is a very practical book. It has a different style of writing. In the book of James, he used mostly imperatives or commands. Do this, do that, don't do the other, etc., Whereas Paul in the book of, uh, or the letter of Philippians, uses exhortations, which are a little bit more gentler, I think. So uh, we have two comparisons there, but very practical books, because we're meant to do what Paul exhorts the Philippians and the church down the ages anyway. The same as we're meant to follow what James commands in his letter. Now, apart from the many exhortations of Paul to the Philippians, it's probably also Paul's most joyful epistle. The Philippian church does not appear to be overwhelmed by doctrinal problems, although they are not entirely free of conflict, but that's for another day. Now, just to recap on last month, we looked at chapter 1 and 1 to 11, the first verses of chapter, those first 11 verses of chapter 1 and saw that Paul's exhortations were effectively enshrined in his prayer for the believers, which appears in verses 9 to 11. Now you might like to turn to Philippians 1. We're going to be continuing on afterwards as well. So chapter 1 of Philippians 1. So let's listen again to these words of encouragement from Paul. This is from verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I was thinking about that small passage of a few verses, and in a nutshell, I thought this exhortation... Reminds me of the song, More Love, More Power. Do you remember that? Paul's prayer was that they will have more of the character of Jesus in their lives. More love, more knowledge, more discernment, more purity, sincerity and righteousness. Now if these things were of no small request, we also saw that the first passage that we looked at presented us with certain challenges probably the most important, I've said to me anyway, is being the bondservant. And you remember that Paul referred to himself and Timothy as bondservants, but also later on in the letter, um, we see in chapter 2, verse 7, that Jesus is referred to as a bondservant as well. And so I said our personal challenge to ourselves was, are we willing, obedient and respectful to our Master at all times and see his priorities ahead of our own preferences. If we're overawed at the immense responsibility to which Christ has called us, we need to go back to um, Philippians 1 verse 6 and remind ourselves as Paul uh, Paul's words there. He says, being confident of this, Amen. that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Until the day of Jesus Christ. So if we're willing and submissive, um, the Lord will give us his spirit to carry out the works that he wants us to do. Thank you, Jesus. Now having um, recapitulated briefly on last month's talk, let's now read uh, Philippians 1, 12 to 30. That's the passage we're going to look at today. And as I read through these verses, try to envisage the challenges yourselves that are presented as we go through there, um, and also the encouragements of Paul to the Philippians. We we'll read 12 to 30 of chapter 1. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains but the latter out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defence of the gospel watch then only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth Christ is preached and in this I rejoice yes and will rejoice for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh... This will mean fruit from my labour. Yet what shall I choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant, abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Now before we look at the uh, exhortations and challenges that I've spotted and they may be different to those that you've seen and understand and there could be more or less of them, let's have a look at the text itself. So to summarise this passage, it's broken into three sections really. The first um, verses 12 to 26 explain Paul's situation in Rome and that can be subdivided Verses 12 to 18, Paul describes how his circumstances had advanced the gospel in Rome. In verses 19 to 26, Paul asserts his salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verses 27 to to 30 feature the exhortations and dealing with suffering for Christ. So let's look at the first section, Advance of the Gospel. Paul informs the Philippians in verse 12 that the things that happened to him have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. It can't be certain what things Paul is referring to here, but I thought it would be good to take a snapshot of the events that occurred from the time Paul was seized by the Jews in the temple at Jerusalem to the time of his writing the letter to the Philippians, and see what sort of things he went through. I haven't picked them all up, but I've picked up the main points. So I don't know if you want to flick to Acts or just follow me, but uh, we can find these from Acts 21.30, some of the things that happened to him. So we're looking at what things actually happened to him that turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul first faced a mob in Jerusalem and was then brought before the Sanhedrin, who were unable to agree to his fate when he stirred up the Pharisees and the Sadducees among themselves by mentioning the resurrection. Of course, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so there was chaos, I imagine. Paul was then sent to Caesarea to face trial in front of Felix the governor. And Felix himself procrastinated for two years, and then Paul faced Festus, who was uh, Felix's successor. And all this time, Paul was held in custody by the Roman authorities. Festus was petitioned by the Jews to have Paul judged in Jerusalem. But Paul, of course, refused to go and appealed to stand before Caesar. Now, Festus agreed to this. They had to wait for a ship bound for Rome. And whilst this was going on, Paul was brought before King Agrippa and his wife, Bernice, who were guests of Festus. An amazing thing happens. He was allowed to give account of his life and conversion mm. to the royal party and the court officials. That's in Acts 25:23. if you're not there yet. Eventually, a ship was found, mm. which took Paul and other prisoners to Myra, which is a port on the southwest coast of modern-day Turkey. From there, they took another ship bound for Italy, And in turn they sailed through calm seas and rough seas. And Paul warned the Roman centurion guarding the prisoners of the dangers facing them. Remember it was winter, we're told it was approaching the Day of Atonement. So it was October time, winter time, and the seas in the Mediterranean were rough. They managed to pass Crete, but then ran into a tempest. They were, after many days and various other um, incidences, shipwrecked on mortar without any loss of life now an interesting thing again on mortar um, Paul was bitten when they gathered some firewood to build a fire they made a fire and a viper jumped out of the fire or the sticks seized Paul's hand and he shook it off uh, without any ill effects and this amazed the Maltese natives because When the viper first seized him, they thought, this man must be a murderer. He's just escaped from a shipwreck, and now he's been bitten and he's going to die from a poisonous snake. However, when no harm came to him, they suddenly changed their minds. They thought, this man must be a god. Another three months, they sailed again for Rome. Now, in Acts 28. Acts 28.16 says... Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, we can see that any one or more of these events or trials, not trials in the legal sense, but testings, could have been advantageous to the spread of the gospel. For example, when Paul related the account of his conversion to King Agrippa, and the royal court. The Holy Spirit may have worked in the lives of those listening. In fact, Agrippa was quite moved, but he wouldn't admit it. Seeds may have been sown. The same could apply to Paul's uh, co-prisoners on board ship, the Roman soldiers guarding them, and indeed the natives of Malta. That's all surmise. The things which did happen to him could have been what Paul was referring to since he arrived in Rome now there are certain things that did or we can assume happened one of them that I've picked out if we compare Acts 28 30 and 31 to Acts 28 16 it would appear that Paul had been granted certain freedoms so Acts 28 30 and 31 say then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. If you look at Acts 28:16, it says that Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So it seems as if he was granted more freedoms as time went on. But to summarise um, verse 12, whatever the circumstances Paul is referring to, They had not been detrimental, but advantageous to the progress of the gospel. And we praise the Lord for that. So back to verse 13 now then, in Philippians 1, verse 13. Paul now elaborates on the progressive effects of the gospel in in at least two ways. First in verse 13, it says it had become evident or clear to the whole palace guard that Paul was not an ordinary criminal, but that he was in prison because of his preaching and witness for Jesus Christ and the gospel. Just to look at one of the words here, the Greek word for palace that's used is praetorium. And in this instance probably refers, it can mean an ordinary palace, a king's palace, but in this instance <coughs> probably refers to the Roman commander's headquarters. And therefore the palace guard would be all of the soldiers based in the commander's headquarters. Paul being in prison because of the gospel of Christ was also evident to all the rest, it says. And the phrase, all the rest, may be applicable to those or some of those that we read of in Acts 28, 23 and 24. If you're still there, you might like to look at that, but I'll read it to you. So when they had appointed Paul a day many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning to evening and some were persuaded by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved well you can't win them all as they say so the rest then were all of those in Rome who heard Paul and the Gospel and believed in the Lord Jesus as the Son of God and the Saviour of the world. And we know of one such person from another letter of Paul's, the letter to Philemon. He talks about Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus, who was converted by Paul's preaching whilst he was in Rome. The second effect, progressive effect of the Gospel comes from verse 14 back to Philippians 1 and is evidenced by the boldness of existing believers in speaking the word without fear. They would have seen the powerful witness of Paul even as a prisoner and under persecution and recognised God's faithfulness and blessing in adverse circumstances. And we've seen some examples of that today, haven't we, with Hillary and all these people that have uh, been going through medical problems the way they've been blessed. It's wonderful. Uh, this encouraged them in their own faith and witness and dissipated any fear. However, note carefully Paul's words about the believers in verse 14 becoming confident by his chains. Paul says most, most of the brethren in the Lord had become confident. Now, the remainder of these brethren could quite possibly be one of the groups spoken of in verses 15 to 18. From verse 15, it says that Paul um, has two groups that preach the gospel with him. We can call one group the remainder, if you like, or the pretenders. From verse 14, some preach out of envy and strife, and the confident ones preach from goodwill Amen. now this conclusion is reached from Paul's comment in verse 18 that Paul rejoices when Christ is preached whether in pretense or in truth remember he's addressed these as brethren both groups of brethren so it would appear from Paul's attitude that the doctrine of Christ is preached correctly in both cases but the problem for the pretenders or the remainder is that they've got some sort of personal feelings against Paul which were intended to worsen his circumstances. And Paul describes these pretenders as envious of perhaps Paul's uh, power and authority as an apostle. He describes them as causing strife by trying to discredit his ministry and selfishly ambitious and insincere, perhaps wanting personal power at the expense of Paul's demise. By contrast, Paul's supporters, like him, want to see Christ preached and exalted. They love Paul and recognise that he has been appointed by God to suffer his current imprisonment. Paul was God's instrument. Now, just as an aside, if you think about it, God had accomplished, within a relatively short period of 30 years, the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ, from small beginnings in lowly Judea to, the, to its defence before Caesar at the centre of the lofty Roman Empire. So that's the end of the first section. Now we come to the second subject, which is Paul's salvation. And in verse 19, Paul talks about his deliverance. Again, this deliverance is not clear what he's talking of. It could be Paul's ultimate salvation, it could be his vindication by the emperor and uh, therefore his release and escape from execution or it could be his being set free from his current imprisonment we don't know for certain but whatever his meaning Paul was confident that with the prayers of the Philippians and the supply of the Holy Spirit I like that phrase his earnest expectation and hope would be achieved that expectation and hope was that he would never be ashamed of the gospel or his Saviour, and always have boldness to preach the gospel of Christ and bring glory to Christ, whether he lived or died in the process. Verse 21 for me, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he stresses his own faith that it was unshaken. Christ had become for him the motive of his actions, the goal of his life and ministry, and the source of his strength. Paul knew for himself the promise of Jesus given to the disciples in the Great Commission, Matthew 28:20, 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Paul was so committed to the will of God that both life and death had its attractions. From verse 22, Paul did not actually mean he could choose his fate, but he thought it needful for the spiritual growth of the Philippians that he remain in this world to continue his ministry among them. This would enable them to see more clearly the riches of their salvation in Christ. And the increasing of their faith would result in the increasing of their joy. Now we come to the third section, the exhortation and the suffering. I'd just like to use a little bit of license here in my talk to deem verse 19 to be an exhortation in kind. And that, if you look back to verse 19, it's the call to prayer for fellow believers. Remember, Paul was confident of his deliverance through the prayer of the Philippians and the Holy Spirit. Paul was never slow to ask for prayer. And you can see in most of his letters, I've just picked a few, one and two Thessalonians, two Corinthians and Romans. In those letters, he asked for the congregations or the the, the believers to pray for him and to uphold him. And I thought it would be a good time, especially after what we heard this morning, to take a few moments to remember how the prayers for each other hold us up and um, get us through some of the toughest times in our lives. When people are in sorrow, uh, one of the greatest comforts is being aware that others are praying for them. When people travel, especially across continents, it is upholding to know that the brethren are praying for travelling mercies and the safety and the security of the families left behind at home. When sick and in distress, we get strength and consolation for those praying for us. I will ask Koshi in a minute. It's now a year since I had my prostate operation and um, I was speaking to Dave last week and the most notable thing for me was not having any pain. The nurses kept coming around and saying, do you want some painkillers? Do you want some painkillers? And I said, no, I don't need any. And I firmly believe it was the prayers of you people here. I think Francis shared the same thing. Dave was talking about the same thing. Koshi, I'm sorry if it doesn't work for you. Does it work for you? Your pain is perhaps to alleviate it. The pain at the beginning was fine, but uh, it's a lot more painful than now. <laughs> right, so we need to pray more <laughs> earnestly. <laughs> we need to pray more earnestly for Koshi and help him get through the pain. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, so let's turn to the exhortations then. Verse 27 there, I think there are three. But bear in mind, I th- I'd like to include praying for our fellow believers as an exhortation. So let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here Paul uses the Greek word for conduct, which means to be a citizen. And um, it was used metaphorically of the church as in accordance with the characteristics of the heavenly commu- community. And this term was particularly apt for members of the church in a city whose inhabitants were proud of their status as Roman citizens. Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony, and they were very proud to be Roman citizens. But they should be even prouder to be citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And he mentions that again in chapter 3, verse 20. He exhorts them to live lives accordingly that they are members of the heavenly community. Earlier on in my talk in the recap, I mentioned the immense responsibility we have as Christians. Once we've chosen to follow Christ, our life and conduct will either bring glory or shame to Jesus. A leader is judged by his followers, and Jesus is judged by others in the way that we represent him. So we need to remember that. Our conduct must always be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The second exhortation is to stand fast in one spirit with one mind. And this introduces Paul's call to unity, of which we see more later on in the letter. And it goes hand in hand with the third ex- of exhortation. Strive together for the faith of the gospel. This brings to mind for me the words from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this we'll all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So what better way to witness than to be united in the love of Christ? In verse 28, we have one exhortation. We are not in any way to be terrified by our adversaries. And adversaries here could be anything from the physical and spiritual, opponents inside or outside the fellowship, or in the case of Philippi, Jew or Gentile. To recognize that Jesus is on the side of believers should cause them to avoid unreasoned terror of adversaries. And I've chosen two scriptures to illustrate that point, both from the first letter of John. 1 John 4 4 says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And in 5 verse 4, 1 John 5 4 For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. When believers stand up to their adversaries without being terrified, Paul tells the Philippians that it's a sign they've been granted courage from God and are demonstrating their salvation. And when there is a failure of adversaries to intimidate believers, that's a sign that the ultimate um, end of the adversaries is eternal destruction, perdition. Okay, verses 29 to 30 finish off with suffering. We must remember that one of the privileges of being called to Christ is to suffer for him. And there are many scriptures that talk about that. Um, I've just picked out one here. James writes in his um, letter, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And Jesus, of course, says in the um, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we must always remember that God's grace is sufficient for us because his strength is made perfect in weakness. And coming back to uh, Philippians verse 30, Paul could be alluding to his brief imprisonment in Philippi. Remember, that's in Acts 16, I think it is, along with Silas. And that was witnessed by the Philippians. Now Paul is writing to him about his current imprisonment in Rome. I think that's the, the allusion there. So to conclude, it could be said that the five exhortations of Paul to the, Philippi- to the Philippians can be applied effectively to the church of today. Here they are again. We are to pray for each other, let our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, be united in our faith and fellowship and strive together for the faith of the gospel and we are not to be terrified of our adversaries. Now to these I would add the challenges that I've noted from the passage we've studied. They're not meant to be exhaustive, certainly are challenges to the way I lead my Christian life. And as I said, you may have seen other challenges as well, or different challenges. But um, let's ask the questions of ourselves if we've been challenged by God's word today. And I ask myself, am I ready and equipped to face trials? That's from verse 12. Does my behaviour show that I'm a follower of Jesus? Verse 13. Am I bold in my witness for Jesus? Verse 14. Can I rejoice in all circumstances, as Paul did, it seems, verse 18. And this is a crunch one, isn't it? Am I willing to live or die for Christ? We won't know till we face that situation, I suppose. Verses 19 and 20. Am I ready to suffer for Jesus' sake? Verses 29 and 30. Now, let's remember that our God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing. And he loves us as his children and desires to use us in his service. Nothing is impossible for God. And I close again with the words from Ephesians as a word of encouragement. 3.20 from Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen.